Hello, my lovely listeners. I'm Dr. Mary Barson. And I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. Welcome to this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. Good morning, lovely listeners. It's Dr. Lucy here on another wintry morning. And we have a great podcast in store for you today. Hello, Dr. Mary. How are you this morning? Very good. Thank you. And very excited to talk about our podcast topic. It is June. It is Bowel Cancer Awareness Month. And today we are talking about red meat. Does red meat increase your risk of bowel cancer? It's interesting, isn't it? And if you ask probably 90% of the people in the street, they will reply with an emphatic yes. But today we thought we would just dissect some of the science, which is totally Mary's genius zone. She has an honours degree in biochemistry and has done lots of science and research in her time. So it's fascinating. I am so interested in the idea that even language around bowel cancer and, you know, I was thinking about this the other day about how we, we call it bowel cancer or colon cancer, and everybody knows what that means. But when we're talking about perhaps health or wellness, we start calling it the gut. It's quite different. Nobody ever calls it gut cancer, but they are the same, the same organ, the same, you know, part of our body. But it's just in an interesting, different language for different sort of thoughts. It is like... One is medicalised, you know, bowel cancer, and the other one is, like you said, health and wellness, gut. But, but they are exactly the same. The conventional nutritional medical establishment like, perennially attacks red meat. I think it happens once a year or more often than that. There's some new study that comes out and then um, I get a whole lot of emails or Facebook messages, you know, is red meat killing me? Should I stop? eating red meat. And this happens a lot in nutritional science. And the truth is that the link between red meat consumption and cancer has never been strong. The evidence has always been weak. We are in such a difficult interesting yet difficult situation with nutritional science at the moment where nutritional science has set the bar really, really low in assigning causation to associations. Tell me about causation and association. What does that actually mean in in layperson language? Great question. So association and causation are different but related things. So Association is one event is associated with another, but it doesn't necessarily cause the other. So umbrellas, people carrying umbrellas is associated with rainy days. Does that mean that people carrying umbrellas causes rainy days? To be perfectly frank and honest, honestly, Nutritional scientists in this day and age might actually say that it does. That is how low the bar has been set with nutritional science. And I don't know how we got into this circumstance, how we got into this situation, but we are. So anyway, that's association. Well, I do think we know how we got in there. And part of it is that a lot of the studies were funded by companies 
that have a vested interest in the outcome. And I think the thing to remember is that research is really expensive. So who's going to fund a five or 10 or 20 year study who doesn't have some investment in the outcome? Yes, that is the sad but true state um, for much of medical research and nutritional research at the moment. So most of our nutritional research looks at what we call epidemiological data, which is it's not a set up experiment. They don't get 500 people, put 250 of them in one metabolic ward and 250 of them in the other metabolic ward for 30 years, watch what they eat and then look at their health outcomes. That's like a scientific study. And for many obvious reasons, including the astronomical cost, that doesn't happen. Instead, nutritional scientists look at epidemiological data. So they just take a whole lot of people that are just out in the world living their lives under uncontrolled circumstances so they're not, you know, in a metabolic ward where every single ounce of their food is measured and weighed and studied. They're just out, just being humans. And then they give them questionnaires, nutritional questionnaires, and they'll ask these people who participate in this study, what have you eaten today, last month, this year, over the last 30 years? Like There's all different types of nutritional questionnaires. And then they measure the health outcomes of these people, their rates of whatever they're looking at, high blood pressure, of heart attacks, strokes, cancers. And then they look at these food questionnaires and then they look for associations. And as I mentioned, associations is not the same as causation. Umbrellas do not cause rainy days. And that is something we need to be extremely careful of. When you are looking for a cause, a causation, you definitely need to start with associations. Dark grey clouds are associated with rainy days. So, you know, I wonder, do dark grey clouds cause the rain? I would like to look into that a little bit more. You need to find the association. So looking for the associations isn't wrong. But where nutritional science has set the bar so, so abominably low is that even a weak association, that will jump straight to causation. And the Harvard University, I don't want to point the finger at one institution, but Harvard University is um, particularly good at this. They pump out a lot of studies looking where they just see some associations and go bang, causation. There is actually some a reasonably robust set of rules that scientists should use to try and assign causation to an association. And that is, it's got a name, it's called the Bradford Hill Criteria. Bradford Hill was a, a scientist, an epidemiologist, who back in 1965 came up with these criteria for how can, in what circumstances can one... Can one form an opinion that an association actually is the causation? How do you get from an association to a verdict of causation? And Bradford Hill was quite famous for his work with Richard Dole looking at cigarette smoking and cancer, lung cancer. And he was one of the first people to discover that there was a causation between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. There was definitely an association 
And with his research, he then was able to show a causation. And there are nine of these criteria. So the first criteria is looking at the strength of the association. So famously, chimney sweeps, um, back in the day when we had chimney sweeps, had almost a 200 times increase in rate of scrotal cancer than people who were not chimney sweeps. So 200 times. And that's pretty strong. And arguably, and I think quite rightly, um, Bradford Hill said that's pretty much strong enough on its own to make us think that there is a causation here, that if you're a chimney sweep, you're 200 times more likely to get scrotal cancer. But he applied all of the other criteria as well. And then it, it became pretty well established that there was a causal link between being a chimney sweep and getting scrotal cancer, which sucked for the chimney sweeps. And that was something that they legitimately needed to be worried about. But Bradford Hill, when he was doing his work on cigarettes, he noticed that there was a three times the risk of heart disease in people who smoke cigarettes. And he wasn't convinced. He was like, well, three times the rate, still pretty weak. I mean, yep, sure. Let, let's have a look into this. Let's, let's try and apply some of the other criteria but that's weak. I'm still not convinced that on the basis of that association that we can say that smoking is associated with heart disease. And of course, I mean, now we know that it is, but by his own criteria, he was sceptical. He was like, let's look into this, but he was sceptical. But nowadays, associations far weaker than that, far, 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 far weaker than two to three times increased risk, nutritional scientists will automatically apply a causation to. It's fascinating, isn't it? Like universities, as you mentioned, like Harvard, and they get their funding and their status on the number of research articles they get published. So again, they're wanting to have published products. So again, you know, they will be publishing things that probably really don't even need to be published. Like there's not actually anything there to publish, but they publish it anyway. And Again, you know, and this is the cynical part of me, journals in medicine, there's a lot, in fact, in science, there's journals galore, you know, there's the British Journal of Medicine, there's the Australian Journal of Medicine, there's science, there's uh, nutritional science journals, and they also get kudos, if you like, for the number of, or people buy their magazines and their journal articles based on how many they publish and not necessarily the quality of the publication. So this is another confounder, I think, for the ongoing research articles. And I know we've got some to talk about, and I want to just make a note that I would love to also talk about that one that was published recently that says that eggs cause diabetes in Chinese people. It's a beautiful example of rubbish science. There were so many holes in that in that particular study. I remember that one. So um, so back to red meat, mares, because a lot of people still, okay, they're going radio. Okay, this is interesting. So, but red meat causes cancer, right? I Truly, we do not have enough data to say that it does, which would, I think, astound people because that is what we have been told. So I'm going to dissect the red meat causes cancer dogma a little bit now. So we can't definitively say this and that might be shocking to some people because, you know, there have been lots of 
studies that have come out that said that it does. And this is what, I mean, it is completely understandable that people are confused about what to eat because it is extremely confusing. The bar has been set so, so low with nutritional science that much of what is published, much of what is reported, much of what is out there in the media that people talk about on the news is actually quite meaningless. And there's so much confusion and so much noise. But to dissect a little bit about red meat, the link between red meat and bowel cancer, I mean, it could surprise people to know that the evidence is extremely inconsistent. So they're looking at these epidemiological studies. There are some epidemiological studies where there is a weak association. There are some epidemiological studies where there is a stronger association. There are some epidemiological studies where there is a strong inverse relationship. Quite famously, the Women's Health Study shows an inverse relationship. So in that study, eating red meat was like strongly associated with not getting bowel cancer. Like it, it would look like it was a protective thing to do. So despite the sort of the, the current perhaps medical establishment dogma, despite what is reported in the media, despite perhaps what people believe to be true, in actual fact, the evidence is not particularly consistent. And this was summarised really nicely in a 2011 paper, which I will put the link below. Looking, it was just a critical summary of, of all these prospective epidemiological studies. It was published in a, in a reputable journal called the Obesity Review. And look, I like this study because it's not trying to, it's not industry funded, it's not trying to do anything other than just look at the data that is available. And when they looked at the data that was available, the conclusion was, hmm, actually I could, I'll read it out to you, I've got it here. The currently available epidemiological evidence is not sufficient to support an independent positive association between red meat consumption and colorectal cancer. So that's the consistency of the evidence isn't there. And then the second thing is this idea of confounders. This is one of the Bradford Hill criteria, the nine criteria that needs to be applied before we can say an association is a causation. And there are lots of these confounders in the epidemiological data with nutritional research. For example, most Americans, um, this, this is just some what, what the data is available, most Americans who eat red meat actually also eat their red meat in a hamburger bun made from processed white flour. They often eat it with fries that have been, you know, fried in commercial seed oil, and they probably also drink it with a Coke, high fructose corn syrup and high sugar content. So is it the red meat in the Big Mac fries and Coke that is causing, that is associated with an increase in bowel cancer, or is it the bun, the fries and the Coke? Well, you know, we don't know. That's impossible to tease out on epidemiological data. And also, look, all of those healthy, health-conscious people in those epidemiological studies, the ones who really care about their health, who make really conscious decisions about what they eat, you know, their exercise, they don't smoke, they don't drink to excess, they manage their stress, they ensure that they get a lot of sleep. These health-conscious people listen to the health messages out there and the health messages say, don't eat red meat, don't eat red meat. And so these people are probably not eating red meat. 
is the fact that they're not eating red meat the reason why they're getting less bowel cancer? Or is it because they sleep better, they manage their stress, they eat less processed foods, they don't smoke and they don't drink to excess? We don't know. It is completely impossible to tease that out. Let's look at another confounding variable that isn't often talked about, but I think is extremely important to consider, your gut bacteria. So one of the proposed mechanisms by which red meat causes cancer, one of the proposed mechanisms, is through these compounds called triethylalamine N-oxides. Say that 10 times fast. Or TMAOs. And so it is thought that red meat contains this compound called L-carnitine. It's not the only food that we eat that contains this compound, but it is in particularly high amounts in red meat. It's an amino acid, L-carnitine. And then when we eat this, our gut bacteria, some of our gut bacteria then um, metabolize this L-carnitine into trimethylalamine or TMA. And then the TMA can enter our bloodstream through the gut wall and then the liver oxidizes it to triethylalamine N-oxide, the TMAO. And that is the TMAO that is associated with increased inflammation and possibly also changed cholesterol transport and might be a mediator of increased cancer risk. But the gut bacteria, so it's actually one of the gut bacteria that loves to do this is the Prevotella. So the Prevotella loves to turn L-carnitine into TMA. And do you know what Prevotella's actual favourite food is, Dr Lucy? Nope. No, I've no idea, but I'm pretty sure you do. (laughs) It's grains. Grains, specifically grains. So not even, you know, carbohydrates from fruit and vegetables, but grains. And so people who have a high grain intake, flour, specifically, are going to have more of this Prevotella, which is going to be turning their L-carnitine into TMA. And interestingly, yeah, people who've got increased bacteroides in their gut, they're going to have less TMA conversion. And you know about bacteroides, Dr. Lucy, don't you? Absolutely. We know that bacteroides, two of the phylum that I can remember, uh, and remember phylum is just a fancy word for the family of bacteria, are bacteroides and firmicutes. So bacteroides is associated with a lean body habitus and firmicutes is associated with an obese body habitus. So we are wanting more bacteroides and obviously more bacteroides sounds like it's a good thing for many things. Yes, it is. So, I mean, what is the problem then? Is the problem the red meat or is the problem the grain-rich diet? Yeah, we don't actually know. No, and I think the thing is that just getting on, I'm getting excited now because also Firmicutes, we know Firmicutes loves sugar or glucose. So it's a little less discerning and it's any old glucose that's floating around. But certainly if you've got lots of grains in your diet and excessive sugar and then you're going to have a lot of firmicutes and not many bacteroides. That's right. So the role of our diet more generally and the role that it plays in our gut health more generally is probably extremely important. And this is the problem with cherry picking these weak associations. You just pick one food group, poor old red meat that you know humans have been eating for millennia since before we were even humans this food has been a normal part of our diet that arguably our gut is 
perfectly adapted to eating meat that we are we are omnivores. This is the food that we evolved to eat. And you just cherry pick out this one, this one piece based on weak data from epidemiological studies, which are problematic in the first place, and turn it into a blanket recommendation, eat less red meat. It has serious problems. And I really feel for everyone out there who is really confused. Do you know what, Mayers? The other thing is with epidemiological studies that are relying on people filling in food journaling. So our membership for June, the challenge this month has been food journaling, not food journaling in the traditional sense where you have to, you know, write down, I ate three pieces of tomato and, you know, two lettuce leaves and 100 grams of chicken. What it is is more about the feelings and associations with food. But what we talked about was that Food journaling as a tool for dieting, air quotes, in the past has really been about this very rigid documenting of your two pieces of tomato, etc. And how lots of us used to lie on our food journals. We used to, we wouldn't put down stuff that we thought was, and again, I'm using my air quotes, naughty, because we didn't want anyone to judge us. So again, if there is this concept that there is a particular outcome, we have this often subconscious bias to not actually be truly honest in food journaling. So again, it just adds that other layer of complexity to epidemiological studies where we're relying on people, A, not only to remember what they eat, but also to to be honest and even sometimes, even if they think they're being honest, they have this subconscious bias to putting down what they think the person wants them to put down. They are notoriously unreliable. So, Mez, we're now hearing that the science is not super robust. So, you know, where, where does this leave us? What, what should we be doing? An excellent question. The science is not super robust. What I tell my people, our people, our wonderful patients and clients and, and people who are, are in our community, is that given the slightly frightening things that are said in the literature about various foods, you know, we've discussed why you don't need to believe every frightening thing that is said about various foods, but we are not comparing apples with apples. You know, this is very much an apples and oranges sort of affair because these epidemiological studies are looking at people typically on a standard American diet, a standard Australian diet, a Western sort of highly processed diet. They're not looking at people who are eating real food diets. So the weekly associated frightening things that they're saying don't really can't relate to people that are eating a real food diet. And as you know, we uh, encourage our people who have weight loss goals or who have got metabolic disease to eat a low carb, real food diet. It definitely doesn't relate to that. You know, there are sort of, you know, the mechanisms by which it is thought that red meat, for example, causes cancer are probably ameliorated by eating a real food diet. So, you know, not eating grains and having an unprocessed diet results in a, in a healthier, more balanced gut microbiome, which is probably very protective. 
it is possible that all those associations are confounded by a high sugar intake, by a highly sort of processed food intake, and that is ameliorated by eating a real food diet. And also the fact that, you know, other real foods interact with other real foods in this sort of synergistic and healthful way. For example, well, let's talk about some of the mechanisms by which people think red meat might cause cancer. So the heme iron in red meat is a gut bacteria can break it down to some compounds, which can be a bit damaging, cytotoxic, less of damaged cells, which might damage the lining of the gut. But if your gut is otherwise healthy and well, then, then maybe, you know, that isn't a problem at all. And vegetables. So we encourage people to eat vegetables. They've got wonderful, all different kinds of phytochemicals with them, um, such as indoles and others, which can really suppress the damaging effect of some of the compounds that we can get from our meat. There's this whole concept of food synergy that when we're eating real whole foods, all of the foods kind of work together to support our health. When we eat the food that we've evolved to eat as omnivorous animals, you know, meat, eggs, nuts, seafood, vegetables, fruit, these things, it all works together in this synergistic way to support our health. I do also, I mean, I recommend that people do limit their exposure to this compound called heterocyclic amines or HAs. That's what happens when you burn meat, red meat, any meat really. They're in vegetables as well, so this is this is not just this is not just a, a red meat specific thing. But certainly, people like to really kind of you know burn their meat and, and have a nice sort of you know char grill on their meat. Not saying that you should never do that, but you would want to limit how much you do that because those heterocyclic amines have been shown to be carcinogenic in certain circumstances. However, eating vegetables and having the many of the polyphenols in vegetables, the phytochemicals, sorry, um, seem to protect against that. And the other thing about burning your meat is that the fat, when it's burnt, can form these substances called polyaromatic hydrocarbons or PAHs, which again, probably aren't all that good for you. So I do encourage people to minimise the exposure to burnt meat and you know, engage in more slow cooking, more gentle cooking techniques, I think is really good. But the take-home message here, beautiful people, is is real food. And it, it passes the common sense, <laughs> the common sense test. Real food. Yep. Real food, minimally processed. And again, it's tricky. The, I think the world of, of bacon, salami and cabana is a murky world because there is various ways to process those products and some of them are processed cheaply with lots of chemicals and additives to them and others are done you know in a more traditional like a provador sense where you know there's less chemicals added to them they're just you know maybe gently smoked over days or some of those things so even within those processed meats you're not comparing apples and oranges so it does, it goes back exactly to our thing, our mantras, real food, low carb, as minimally processed as possible, you know, with the best quality that you can afford. It is not a bargain because something's cheap. You know, it's cheap for a reason. And as I like to say, we're not grain shopping bags. <laughs> we're Gucci. So do, maybe Gucci's not even that good. I don't even know. I'm not a handbag lady, but... Buy the best quality that you can afford. Yeah, 
shop the perimeter of the supermarket, buy single ingredient foods, you know, foods that contain one ingredient, broccoli, meat, butter. That's right. You're um, unlikely uh, to get into too much trouble if you do those two things. Shop the perimeter, single food ingredients. Real food supports our health. It's what we're meant to eat. And you just, sadly, we're in a situation where we need to tune out this background noise and this fear-mongering, trying to convince us that real food ingredients are damaging to our health. Right. I think that's enough, Mayors. We will revisit this topic from time to time. It is one of our favourites. Gut health, bowel health, colon health. Nutritional science. Nutritional science. And again, as Bowel Cancer Awareness Month, we would finish with the idea that bowel cancer exists It's a and it is a preventable disease. You can have screening. Screening is recommended certainly for people over 45 or if you have a strong family history even earlier you can be screened using tests fecal occult blood testing now which is a tiny bit messy where you just sort of dip a little stick in some poop and send it off to a lab and a positive test doesn't mean you've got bowel cancer it just means you need the next level of investigation which is a colonoscopy so peeps be aware of bowel cancer it's not the red meat That's our two messages for today. Bye, everybody. So, my lovely listeners, that ends this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. And I'm Dr. Mary Barson. We're from Real Life Medicine. To contact us, please visit rlmedicine.com. And until next time, thanks thanks for for listening. listening.